Welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. This is John Murphy. My pleasure to welcome to this podcast Dr. Harvey Borovitz, Dr. Salim Olia. Dr. Borovitz is a distinguished professor, former chair of bioengineering at the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Olia is with the University of Pennsylvania Hospital System. Welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. So, Dr. Borovitz, we want to talk about ventricular assist devices, in particular pediatric ventricular assist devices. Can you tell us what a VAD is? That's a wonderful question, Professor Murphy. I guess you could say a ventricular assist device is really what it sounds like. It's a technology that supports the native ventricle that's unable to adequately pump blood to support the organ systems of the body. There's lots of VADs available for adults. And I understand not for infants and children, is that correct? So that's the reason that all of us are, are working in this area, Professor. There are many, many technologies that have been available for adults and that are currently available for adults. Today, even in the year 2020, there is only one FDA-approved blood pump or ventricular assist device for children. So that gives you an idea. One FDA-approved device for kids, many are currently approved for adult patients. So you're trying to develop a new, better mousetrap. Tell us a little bit about what they're seeking to realize. So here I'm only too happy to defer to Dr. Olea, who is really what I call the 21st century type of bioengineer because not only does Dr. Olea have an exquisite education grounded in the fundamentals of biology, engineering, physics, chemistry, et cetera, Dr. Olea, as part of his training, spent a number of years at that unique interface between heart failure patients and the technology that's been developed to try to support them and sustain them through these challenging times. So Dr. Olia brings the best possible background to understanding how you design these technologies. That is, from the perspective of the patient and from the perspective of the families of the patients. So um, Dr. Olia can certainly best answer the questions about what is the current technology, what are the current limitations with this technology, and, and what improvements are needed moving forward. Thanks. So I think the best way to look at the artificial heart realm is to look chronologically at the development. Traditionally, development of ventricular assist devices was at the forefront for adults. We have what's called first-generation ventricular assist devices, which were positive displacement pulsatile blood pumps. They were kind of large, unwieldy. Some of them could be implanted, but a lot of them were actually pericorporeal or sit outside the body. They required valves in order to control blood flow direction, and we used either electronic pusher plates or pneumatic systems to drive blood in and out of these blood sacs to deliver it to the patient. These pumps, being so large and requiring all of this additional equipment, they had a number of complications associated with them, which included thromboembolic complications like strokes, bleeding complications because they all required anticoagulation and because they were mechanical in nature, they sometimes had high failure rates of the device themselves. Because they were big, they also were limited to larger patients. 
we've since moved on to what we call second and third generation VADs in the adult space. These are rotary blood pumps. They have an impeller that spins. They can be either axial, centrifugal, or mixed flow topologies. And basically they create an energy differential in order to drain blood from the ventricle and put it into the systemic circulation. Because these blood pumps are continuous flow, they have a single moving part, the impeller, they're much smaller than these first generation devices. So we can implant them fully in patients and then only have this external drive line, a power cord to run the device. Because of the continuous flow nature of the pumps, they have better washout associated with them. So we've noticed that our, some of our bleeding complications have decreased. We've reduced our mechanical failure rates of these pumps and they have an overall better biocompatibility profile as compared to the first-generation devices. Not to mention, we can fit them in smaller patients. Between the second and third generation, we've done developments where we levitate this impeller, either using hydrodynamic forces or fully magnetically levitated, so we even eliminate the bearing that this is spinning on, and that further reduces the amount of blood damage we create by insertion of the device. The problem comes into play is that the pediatric world has always traditionally lagged behind the adult world when it comes to VADs. Right now, we have a single FDA-approved pump for pediatric patients, and it uses this first-generation technology. It consists of an external pump that has a blood sac, two mechanical valves, and it requires a pneumatic driver that sits next to the patient the size of almost a washing machine that provides the air and vacuum in order to move blood into the pump and then out to the patient. And we are finding the same complications that we see in the first-generation pumps with adults when we're talking about thromboembolic risks, so we have issues with anticoagulation, thrombosis, whether it's on the pump blood clots or sending to the brain in terms of strokes, not to mention that we severely limit the mobility of these patients as well with the device. They're stuck in the ICU, these kids. And this is where we're trying to move the second and third generation technology and kind of bring it to the kids. Thank you for that description. So are these blood pumps implantable? The second and third generation pumps for adults are implantable. And what's happened so far is that the smallest devices like the Heartware and the HeartMate 3 have actually been used in adolescence. If the patient is old or big enough to fit, we will take this adult pump and use it, quote unquote, off-label in these smaller patients to try and give them the benefits that adults see with these continuous flow pumps, being able to go home or at least go to family house instead of being stuck in the ICU. And they, with the lower risk profile too, they can potentially have a longer duration on the device while waiting for their transplant or possible recovery. However, this still doesn't address our smallish patients, what we're talking about anywhere from five to 15 kilograms. And it's this patient population that we're designing next generation, third generation ventricular devices specifically from the ground up that are small enough and operate at the appropriate parameters to actually appropriately support these tiniest patients that still don't have this technology available to them. So I understand that dads are used for short-term therapy and also for what's been referred to as destination therapy. Where's the application for the pediatric? 
So in the adult space, traditionally, we have two primary operating spaces, bridge to transplant or destination therapy, basically buying time until a transplant becomes available, or if a patient is ineligible for transplant, having the device with them for life. In the pediatric space, however, we know kids have a higher propensity for potential recovery. So in effect, we're targeting two specific areas. One would be a bridge to transplant until they can get a transplant, or the second would be bridge to recovery. There's also a subspace under the bridge to transplant would be delaying that transplant because we know that early on transplant leads to issues with requiring the secondary transplants later on in life because these heart transplants only have a shelf life of approximately 10 years or so. So we want to hold off the issues of the immune reaction and immunosuppression. So if we can stave off transplant or even recover the patient, then we can potentially increase the technology use to many more patients. So what's the status of the new technology development? I'm happy to give a background and then Dr. Leah can talk about the future. So much of this work and, and a lot of the work that has found its way into patients actually was conducted at the McGowan Institute. The particular project that I believe we'll be speaking to Dr. Antaki about at some point in one of your podcasts is an offshoot of what began at the McGowan Institute in the year 2004. Basically, 2002, National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute put out a request for proposals, a contract entitled Pediatric Circulatory Support. And so the McGowan team successfully competed for one of those contracts. And over the years 2005 through 2010, we worked on a development of the pump, which is known as the Flow pump. I think uh, during some of that time, Dr. Olea was a graduate student who chose much to our benefit to focus on the PDF flow for his PhD dissertation. So in that first contract from the NHLBI, National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, we put the basic concepts in place and introduced the first three generations of the technology. In 2010, the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute offered another request for proposals, another contract, which was entitled Pumps for Kids, Infants, and Neonates, the acronym PUMPKIN, preclinical program. And again, our team centered into McGowan Institute was successful in competing for that contract. And the goal of that particular contract was to finish the development of the work that had begun during the first contract, pediatric circulatory support, and take your technology all the way through an application for clinical use to the Food and Drug Administration. And so we got three years into that project, and by this time, Dr. Olea was really leading the charge and all the R&D, the development of the technology, leading to the fourth generation of the PDFlow that Dr. Olea can speak to in a moment. And our, our intention was to move forward from there and begin our application to Food and Drug Administration and hopefully even clinical trials. We were sidetracked a bit because of the need for corporate sponsorship and pediatric technology is just not really a technology that most industries are very interested in. 
And of course, the reason is there's so few pediatric heart failure patients because compared to adult heart failure patients, and that certainly explains why there have been so many adult VADs, if you will, over the years versus pediatric VADs. So we kind of came to a hiatus for several years, but you know, as academicians, we never give up the fight, if you will. And we were able to work with Dr. Antaki and Cornell, Dr. Olea, who's now at the University of Pennsylvania, and of course, the McGowan Institute, and compete for a Department of Defense Award called the Peer Review Medical Research Program. In June of this year, our funding began, and we have a three-year program with the ultimate goal to complete all the R&D of the PDFlow technology and take it to the point where we are ready to truly think about the clinical trials. So we complete all our preclinical work at the end of three years, hopefully be in a position to launch the clinical trials. And so given this as a background, Dr. Olea's role in all this work is central, of course, because Dr. Olea truly knows more about the PDFlow technology than anyone. And we're certainly relying on Dr. Olea to develop the fifth generation PDFlow technology, and that will be the one that will find its way into children. So that, that's kind of the background for Dr. Olea's discussion of what will be done. Thanks, Dr. Borovitz. So the PDFlow is actually a very cool pump, and I was fortunate enough with the team to work on it and then kind of continue usher it in with the fourth generation that we were developing. So to give a little bit of background, the PDFlow is what we call a rotodynamic, fully magnetically levitated, mixed flow pediatric ventricular assist device. What I mean by that is that there's a single moving in part, the impeller, it's fully magnetically levitated, so there's no bearings or friction points to damage blood in it. It has, combines the characteristics of both an axial and centrifugal pump in this mixed flow topology so that we have no areas of recirculation within the pump. So we know from our modeling and from literature that hemolysis or the destruction of red blood cells as well as blood trauma in general is a function of both the magnitude of shear stress within the device but also the exposure time and as we move forward from not just measuring hemolysis but looking at common complications like a gi bleeding and strokes, we know that von Willebrand factor and platelet activation are also important factors and they're largely determined by exposure time. So this pump, being single path technology, eliminates any of the recirculation zones that you have with centrifugal pumps to thereby maximize biocompatibility. And that was the overall goal of this device, was to sacrifice nothing and to maximize biocompatibility for these patients. That was our primary goal. So the PediaFlow, the fourth generation, is approximately the size of a AA battery, which therefore enables it to be implanted in ideally the smallest patients that we're targeting, around five to eight kilos. Furthermore, we wanted to ensure that this pump during implantation as well as outside once it's running in the patient is both easy for the surgeons to implant and then straightforward to manage. So a lot of the work we've done for the pump also includes designing of appropriate inflow cannulas, so how we connect it to the heart, uh, as well as how we connect it to the aorta through the outflow graft. 
So we were looking at different inflow cannula geometries, topologies, because that's a common area of complication where if pumps aren't optimally placed, you can run into what's called suction events, where you're basically trying to overdrive the pump and you're sucking in myocardium of the heart as opposed to actually pulling blood in. So with unique tip of this parabolic tip, we have an adjustable cannula insertion depth. All of this helps to address the heterogeneous patient population that we're dealing with in these kids. Kids these small, their primary etiology is congenital heart disease. So you'll see many different types of anomalies as well as some hypertrophic cardiomyopathies. And all of these left ventricles that we're trying to insert the pump into are varying shapes and sizes. And it's tantamount, unlike where it is in adults, where they're pretty much standard. They're very big and floppy, and you can just insert a pump and run it at full speed. Here, we have to be very cognizant about optimizing the device and its operation to the patient. And so with that, we also look into algorithms both to control the device, but also to diagnose conditions with it. And being this fully magnetically levitated type suspension, that allows us to develop more accurate flow estimation algorithms. So we know what we're delivering to patients in terms of blood flow rate and perfusion but also in order to actually tune the pump to dynamically adjust to the patient as well. And that's where we are currently with the device. I do know for a fact that it currently has, for continuous flow pumps, the smallest outflow graph diameter. So at six millimeters, this is important because the size of the aorta for these kids can be the size of your thumb. So we're talking about very tight spaces of varying anatomies, and the goal for this device is to be able to support as many of those patients as we can while still maintaining biocompatibility for long durations of time, bridging them to transplant or potential recovery. Now, I've heard some suggestions that a pediatric bed could also be used for adult cases where the intervention would be earlier than typically found with beds. Is that still the case? This is where Dr. Ali is many years of taking care of bad patients at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. During Dr. Ali's years at the McGowan Institute really has provided such great insight. So, so the concept here is really that the pediatric technology still serves a very small patient population. And so from an industrial point of view, there really isn't much of a market for children. And so the concept has always been, if you have this technology and it is so successful in children, why not think about having a scale up for adult applications? This was certainly something that another one of the McGowan pediatric cardiac surgeons who worked hand in hand with Dr. Aliyah, Dr. Peter Reardon, always said, we believe in this technology, let's first prove it in the pediatric population, and then with those successes in hand, go directly to the adult patient. So I think that was our goal, and I suspect Dr. Antaki and Dr. Olia at some point will have a similar goal moving forward. If I could chime in, I would say, they always say the pediatrician's mantra is that kids are not tiny adults, and the same is true here. You can't just scale down an adult pump and expect it to work in kids. A layman's way of thinking about it is that 
your kid might be smaller, but their red blood cells are still the same size. However, the opposite might be true in the sense that it's much easier to scale up a small pump and maintain the biocompatibility to then support potentially adult patients or even partially support them. And that is one of the goals with this device too, is if we make a couple tweaks or tunes to it using the same chassis or platform, we might be able to derive the higher flows required for adult patients and potentially rather than waiting till what we call crash and burning, implant them sooner to stave off this end organ dysfunction and their very sick state that they're in that makes once you implant the device, hard for them to maintain a quality of life. But if we can put this device in sooner for our, our New York Heart Association class three patients, provide some partial support, we may be able to recover these adult patients or just allow them to continue this device and use it just like someone would get an AICD or a pacemaker. Something like set it and forget it and provide them with the support they need while maintaining the active or somewhat active lifestyle they may have already. And this is one of the goals because right now, ventricular assist device placement for adults is an open heart procedure. Primarily, you crack open the chest, you do a full sternotomy to implant this device, and it does require time to recover. However, if we can put this somewhat more minimally invasively and with a appropriate safety profile, we could support patients earlier while not running into the same complications we see with these larger full support VADs that are currently being used for adults. This is where the clinical background is so important. To date, the uh, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center has performed more than 1,400 VAD implants over the years. It's the first one occurring in 1985 and the most recent one occurring currently. And of those numbers, I think about six dozen or so have been children, something on that order, and the rest being adults. So there is such an enormous background and experience of using ventricular assist device in patients at our academic medical center and in partnership with the McGowan Institute, so that it is really experts like Dr. Olia who will lead the way for incorporating that knowledge, what has worked well with our patients, what has not worked so well, and bringing that unique knowledge into the generations of pumps moving forward. And it will be very exciting and beneficial for the patients. I've been extremely fortunate to be part of the artificial heart program. I can honestly say that everything I learn on the bench top in our preclinical studies, I can bring to the bedside with my patients and with the surgeons and cardiologists I work with and vice versa. All the failures and shortcomings that I see with our current generation pumps that exist, I can bring back to the bench top and our preclinical studies to improve, develop, or address. I think there's a testament to saying who better than the people who designed the pumps to help operate them as well in the actual patients that they're implanted in. The McGowan Institute has been part and parcel of the work that we've done over the decades, Professor Murphy, and I dare say we would not have accomplished this without the McGowan Institute, the support we received. And Dr. Lee is one of your alumni and so I think you're in pretty good shape for the future, having such fantastic alumni like Dr. Olia taking the lead in this field. So I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Agenda Medicine. 
sponsors this podcast series. I'd like to thank our guests for joining us today, sharing with us these exciting developments and the promise for the future. So we meet again. Thank you for listening.